0: Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Don't forget to try doing so on the NPR One app. And another podcast you might like is Fresh Air. Check out a recent episode they did that takes an in-depth look at the Trump Foundation's finances.
1: It features an interview with reporter David Farenthold. He used
0: Twitter to launch a nationwide scavenger hunt to find Trump Foundation assets. Find these and other interviews on the Fresh Air podcast on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Okay, here's the show.
2: This episode was recorded at two o'clock Eastern on Thursday. Things may change by the time you hear it. That's been the case the last few weeks anyway. Whether or not they have Keep up with all of our latest political coverage on NPR.org, the NPR One app, and on your local public radio station. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast, here to round up some of the week's political news. President Trump's cabinet is filling out. while Democrats continue to grapple with
3: what form their opposition
2: is going to take? I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress.
0: I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I also cover Congress. And
3: I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent.
2: Hey, everybody. Hey. All right, let's begin the show with two important things. First of all, it is Groundhog Day. Happy Groundhog Day. I am wearing my Groundhog hat in celebration. Second of all, Ron, Beyonce, twins, thoughts.
3: I think we could all use a little news that was not news from Washington, D.C., and the Beyonce news was just what we all needed.
0: I hope blue's ready to meet red and white. (laughs) (laughs) That was my Twitter joke to Sam. Great.
2: And Sam Sanders tweeted a lot about that. You can check out his Twitter feed to to get that dose of things in your life. All right. Of course, the biggest news of the week was President Trump's nomination of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. We did an episode all about that. It included NPR's Nina Totenberg, the dean of the Supreme Court Press Corps. Check that out to learn everything you need to know about that nomination, Gorsuch's background. For today, let's start out with the fact that President Trump now has his Secretary of State confirmed. Rex Tillerson, today was his first day on the job. Other Trump picks are making their way through the Senate, too, some of them despite Democratic attempts to block votes by simply not showing up at meetings. Susan Davis, you were on the Hill all week until just a couple minutes ago. Uh, where do things stand with all of this? What, what are we looking at right now?
0: The first and potentially only nominee that seems to be really running into trouble in the Senate is Betsy DeVos, who's the nominee for education secretary. The blow to her this week came yesterday when two Republican senators, Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, announced that they could not support DeVos. Now, if you recall in her nomination hearing, she had a really uneven performance. She seemed uh, very uninformed on a lot of key education policy issues. She did not perform well. And senators have raised a lot of questions about her. A lot of these questions, of course, were provoked by Democrats who have been uh, slow walking all of the nominees in this process, in part because they say Donald Trump. Trump has picked a crew of people who have no experience in public life. So they're new to the American public and they require maybe more thorough vetting. And uh, many of them, including DeVos, are very wealthy and they wanted to take more time to look at their financial assets. So she's in trouble. She is also up next in the Senate. That Mm -hmm. is the next vote to come up. Uh, An interesting bit of Senate trivia is that the reason why they are delaying the Jeff Sessions nomination, the senator from Alabama to be attorney general, is they will very likely need Jeff Sessions vote to approve DeVos so they don't want to approve him until they know they can approve her
2: That's right the two Republicans saying there are no vote on her leaves it about 50-50 Ron, that means Mike Pence would potentially break the tie. Does that happen with cabinet nominees ever?
3: Uh, It doesn't happen, generally speaking, much at all. For any reason, you can have an entire four-year period or entire presidency go by, as did uh, the first president Bush's, without a single tie. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Dan Quayle never got to break a tie. But sometimes... Actually, Biden
2: didn't either, right? And
3: neither did Joe Biden, for that matter. I bet that kind of disappointed Joe Biden. Joe would have liked to have gone back and seen his old pals in the Senate. And sometimes we have seen the vice president come in to break ties rather often. Al Gore came in to do that a number of times. So it could happen as soon as next week. If there is not a third Republican willing to vote against DeVos, then we will see a tie. And Mike Pence, as the new vice president, he breaks ties.
1: I know I've been reading that senators have been getting a lot of calls from their constituents about this. Is there any sense that Murkowski and Collins got A lot more calls than everybody else, like a lot more pushback from their people.
0: I don't know if it's specifically about DeVos, but I can say that senators overwhelmingly have said that the input from constituents on nominees across the board is something that they do weigh into their decision making process. She's also a good example of a nominee who, if Democrats had not changed the rules of the Senate in 2013, would be going down now. There were yeah. This is the reason why they had the 60 vote threshold before is that she would not have been able to overcome that today.
2: And right. that gets into the one other thing I want to touch on on the cabinet front. And, uh, you know, we cover this stuff and it could get pretty wonky and boring really quickly talking about committee procedures and rules being suspended and things like that. But there was a lot of uh, a lot of kind of craziness and unpredictability that happened with the committee votes this week on some of these picks where Democrats basically tried to hold up the votes by skipping the meetings. Uh, Sue, can you sum up quickly what kind of happened with that and what the outcome was?
0: You know, you can only cut class so long before you have to show back up again. And that's the tactic that Democrats use this week. It's essentially a delaying tactic. And it ultimately wasn't a very successful one. Uh, Senate committee rules say if you don't have a quorum, that is, if you don't have a certain amount of numbers present and a certain number of members from the minority party, that you can't move forward with a vote. So this was successful in delaying The committee votes for several nominees this week. It was really just a matter of democratic protest. It did not ultimately stop. Republicans from forcing these nominees out of committee. They just suspended the rules of the committee, as the majority has the power to do, and moved on. But it is part of a broader tactical move that Democrats are trying to make in the Senate to at least slow down these nominees and submit them to more public scrutiny. And they would say DeVos is a good example of why they're doing it.
2: And I think you have to tie that to something that we've seen happen uh, more and more and more loudly and loudly over the last couple of weeks outside (laughs) of the Senate. We've been seeing a whole lot of political engagement from the progressive base. Those airport rallies last week, that ton of phone calls coming into these offices. A lot of these people want Democrats to be doing more to block the Trump agenda. But the thing is, the Democrats just don't have the power to do that much. So what can they do if, uh, well, well, first of all, I think there's the one point that a lot of progressives are yelling at Democrats and thousands of people like went to Chuck Schumer's home in Brooklyn this week Mm -hmm. to yell about this. They were upset that a lot of Democrats were voting yes on the early rounds of of nominees. But but Ron, isn't it safe to say that that generally the least controversial nominees go first and they're going to get more votes because they're not controversial and the tougher votes come later?
3: That's right. It also serves the purposes of individual senators, whichever party they're in, to show a certain amount of bipartisanship and willingness to entertain the nominees of the president, whoever the president might be. For example, Russ Feingold, who was a liberal icon to a lot of people, a big progressive, actually cast the crucial vote in the Judiciary Committee in 2001 to allow John Ashcroft's nomination to be attorney general to go forward. A comparable situation to Jeff Sessions because they had been colleagues in the Senate. And uh, it was Russ Feingold, a true liberal, who had decided, no, we should send John Ashcroft forward because the president should have his attorney general and we don't want to stiff him here in committee. And that that made a lot of liberals unhappy.
2: And I think that when it comes to why a lot of Democrats were voting, some of these early nominees, we're going to talk later on about some of the the frantic and disconcerting to a lot of people, uh, foreign policy things that have happened Mm -hmm. this week. A lot of Democrats said Donald Trump has been very aggressive, has no experience in foreign policy. So, yeah, we're going to vote for someone like James Mattis, who is an experienced Mm -hmm. Marine general who knows what he's doing.
1: Right. Absolutely. So, uh, I mean, I have a question, Scott. I know you were at that protest outside the Supreme Court on Monday. I... Happened upon it when I was out for a run after work because this is what it is to be in Washington these days. There's I didn't a,
2: see you there. Yeah,
1: I, I, I was in a I was in my bright pink running attire. You'll have to look next time. Um, <laughs> but my question is, you know, there are a lot of people yelling, do your job. Yeah. I heard it. You heard it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you talked to people. What did they say they meant by do your job? What what particularly did they want sh- uh, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi to do?
2: few things. Broadly, they were upset that Democrats were voting yes on a lot of these early nominees. Mm-hmm. They were upset that Democrats can't block these nominees, which, again, is more of a fault of things that Democrats decided several years ago when they changed the rules than anything else. And I think generally a lot of the feeling was Republicans did everything they could to throw roadblocks up against President Obama. So, Democrats, why aren't you doing exactly the same thing?
1: Just kick up as much fuss as you can, even if it's all sounded fury and
2: yeah. it comes to
1: nothing. Okay. Well,
3: people want to express and hear their representatives express their feelings. Mm-hmm. And this has been a highly emotional couple, three months, uh, not only with the election, but also with many of the things that the president-elect was saying before he was inaugurated, said at his inaugural address. And then, of course, has done in the last two weeks. So there has been a great reason for people to be in the street.
2: So all of this conversation about how Democrats are approaching nominees and what they're doing to block them. You know, I feel like that gets amped up to a whole different level when it comes to this coming Supreme Court fight. You know, we've talked in previous episodes about the fact that Democrats still do have that tool where they can hold up the Senate and block a vote on on Gorsuch until they get 60 votes. Uh, Sue, we've we've both been talking to Senate Democrats and Senate Democratic staffers who have said maybe now is not the best time to totally go to the wall with that fight and have the Republicans change the rules. Could you explain that to someone who's listening
0: and says, well, why not? Yeah. So. When we talk about the the upcoming Supreme Court confirmation process, we have to keep reminding people that there is so much lingering resentment in the Senate for... Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's decision to keep the seat of Antonin Scalia vacant for a year. That stonewalling uh, has infuriated Democrats for the past year. And we're reliving that anger now because Mitch McConnell has essentially said, well, you all need to get over that. And we won the election and we need to move forward. And you need to act like adults. He mm-hmm. has literally said this week, you basically need to get over it, get yeah. over the election. Yeah. And now you have, as you've talked about, Scott, a Democratic base that wants to see all out war against the Trump administration and Supreme Court battles are the place where you get uh, partisans the most fired up. And so the challenge Democrats have is the pressure from their base to oppose him no matter what. There are already at least five senators who have already announced before they met him, before there's been a hearing, that they're not going to vote for Neil Gorsuch for the Supreme Court. And they are influential senators like Elizabeth Warren Mm -hmm. and people that are very reflective of the party's base. So you know, do they want to pick this fight? Because Neil Gorsuch, by every other account, is a highly qualified jurist. And unless something comes out in the nomination process, it may be hard to filibuster someone of his credentials.
2: And he'd also be filling a seat that was very conservative. So this would basically be the status quo once he's appointed, which is a reason why Democrats were so bitter, because if they had gotten that pick last year, it would have changed the 5-4 to the liberal side. But, but, you know, if, if Gorsuch replaces Scalia,
0: It doesn't it doesn't fundamentally change the court as we had it before.
1: But aside from that, I mean, this morning I I actually heard on Morning Edition, David Green talking um, to a Democratic senator. He mentioned that uh, Republican Senator Alexander had, you know, in the vote on Sonia Sotomayor, he had said, you know, listen, she, you know, isn't ideologically my cup of tea, so to speak. uh, But, you know, she is eminently qualified. Therefore, I'm going to vote for her. So you do have some Republicans who can sort of throw some of this back Mm -hmm. at Democrats.
3: Ron first thing I think we need to remember is that while it doesn't change the court makeup to put in Gorsuch in place of Scalia, it extends the life of Antonin Scalia by decades. This is a 49-year-old man coming onto the court where he could serve, well, President Trump said in introducing him, 50 years. Now, That's probably putting a little bit of a burden on Neil Gorsuch to live to be 99 and stay on the court every one of those years.
2: But maybe we'll all be floating around in hover robot chambers in 50 years.
3: Absolutely possible. Uh, Maybe not probable. But the the, the fact is that this does extend, if you will, something like the Scalia legacy— in the body of a new justice who can go on for decades. That's significant. Another thing here that I think really galls the Democrats is they realize that not only did Mitch McConnell hold open the Scalia seat for a full year, he also turned that into a major weapon for the Republicans in the fall campaign. As Donald Trump said again and again, you have no choice. If you're a Republican, you have to vote for me. If you're a social conservative, you have to vote for me because of the open seat of Antonin Scalia. You want me to fill it and not Hillary Clinton.
0: And here's the question Democrats are going to have to ask themselves. Do they want to go nuclear and change the rules of the Senate on a guy like Neil Gorsuch in the event that Donald Trump gets one, maybe two more nominations in his first term in office? In other words, do you want to make it easier for Donald Trump to be able to replace uh, an Anthony Kennedy or a Ruth Bader Ginsburg with a Ted Cruz or a Mike Lee? And that is the real next fight is if Donald Trump gets one more.
2: All right, let's circle back to Rex Tillerson. He is now Secretary of State, and he's probably having a pretty busy first day of work. First, Tillerson gave a speech at the State Department this morning. Let's take a listen.
3: I know this was a hotly contested election, and we do not all feel the same way about the outcome. Each of us is entitled to the expression of our political beliefs, but we cannot let our personal convictions overwhelm our ability to work as one team. Let us be understanding with each other, about the times we live in as we focus our energies on our departmental goals.
1: To me, what struck me about this speech was, it, to me, it was a big deal that the speech's tone was such a big deal. I mean, there was a lot of talk about how uh, calm and reasonable and diplomatic, uh, no pun intended, the speech really was. Uh, later in the speech, Rex Tillerson said, before we are employees of the State Department, we are human beings first. Uh, And so, you know, after a lot of the bombast of Donald Trump, this speech stood out, I believe, to a lot of people watching it as being a very... You know, everybody come together. Let's let's work together to get get our jobs done, regardless of party.
2: Being diplomatic.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah.
3: We saw a little bit of a an indication of what Rick Tillerson's role is going to be in the foreign policy of the Trump administration. He's going to come in on the day after or the hour after or the moment after something has happened that might be disruptive. And he's going to use that tone of voice and that very reassuring, almost sleepy kind of delivery to say, don't worry, everything's going to be all right. So he's the global Mike Pence? (laughs) That's one way to put it, although I I think he has an air about him that is even more reassuring to a lot of people. He has a kind of globalist, I know that word has a heavy meaning, but he has a worldly way about him. He has had as many employees as a corporate head as he will have with the State Department, and he just seems like a world-class player to a lot of people, and there may not be necessarily the same conviction about everyone in the White House.
2: Well, funny you should say that because there was a report in The Washington Post this morning that President Trump was on the phone with the Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, after yelling at him about a deal that the U.S. made to accept refugees from Australia. He also allegedly said, this is the worst call I've been on all day, and he hung up on him.
1: Right, and for a little bit of what? back, well, for a little bit of background here, the deal that he's upset about is one that the Obama administration struck in November. It was a lame duck uh, decision. What happened is Australia keeps some of these refugees and asylum seekers in these offshore detention centers in some of these islands in the Pacific, Papua New Guinea, for example. It's pretty controversial, and these people, you know, they're sort of stuck in a purgatory sort of thing. They can't go back to where they came from. They also can't get to Australia, so. President Obama struck this deal saying, all right, we will take refugees, we will take uh, around 1,200, 1,250 of them. It's a one-time thing. This is not going to be a continuing thing. That is what President Trump is upset about. And he tweeted his disapproval, you know, calling this a quote-unquote dumb deal. Uh, and saying that he was going to, you know, study it.
0: He also inaccurately referred to them as illegal immigrants. They are not illegal immigrants. They Mm -hmm. are refugees. Right.
2: So this call comes a couple days after another call with the president of Mexico, Enrique Peña Nieto, who, of course, canceled a trip to the White House. And reportedly in this call, President Trump joked about sending in U.S. military forces to Mexico to deal with what he called bad hombres. It is important to note that there have been a couple different reports on this and different uh, tones of the conversation, some saying that Trump basically implied that he was sending troops across the border, which is a big deal. Others saying it was more of an offer or a joke. But either way, these are pretty hostile, pretty aggressive calls for a president to be making in week one without any sort of like crisis precipitating them.
3: At the same time, this is essentially the kind of foreign policy punching the president promised in the campaign, that he was going to go after his perceived situation of the United States having been, as he said at the National Prayer Breakfast on Thursday morning, being taken advantage of by virtually every country in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, if you see the world that way, and I, I have no doubt that he does, if that is what you believe has been going on, Perhaps the very best way to deal with it is to get on the phone with the world in week one and start punching back and saying, you know what? If you guys don't clean up this border situation with your own authorities, maybe we're going to have to send some of our authorities down there, and maybe that would include troops. And then this business about bad hombres, you know, that might have been a joke, and there was some speculation that many of these things that he said were less than serious.
2: A big part of the congressional beat these days is walking around and asking various lawmakers what they think of what Trump said or tweeted. (laughs) And then
0: they say, I'm not going to respond to everything Trump tweets. (laughs)
2: Or, I didn't check Twitter today, which is what (laughs) Ryan has used Uh, uh, Sue, what have we heard from, from the relevant leaders on, on this string of calls?
0: Well, House Speaker Paul Ryan this morning got his weekly press conference, and he uh, reiterated that the U.S. is a firm ally of Australia and that too much was being made of it. I do want to make one observation about these calls and Trump in general. The information that we've gotten from this is readouts from these calls that were written down. So you read the transcripts of them. And I think when you read Trump, and when you listen to Trump, they are two very different experiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And particularly with that Mexico call, where initially it was sort of seen as he was being hostile. And then another take on it was like, no, it was more of like a little bit joking, a little bit more, um, you know, l- less, less aggressive. And I think judging Trump just by transcripts and things, it's a different, it's hard to do with him.
2: That's true. Because like we all do radio stories and we write stories for the web. And those can be very different. And I thought over the course of the campaign that like Donald Trump is the perfect candidate to cover on the radio because you can just build stories around things he says and the pauses and the things that he's clearly sarcastic about and not. But yeah, that's a good point.
1: I just want to hinge off of one thing that Ron said also, you know, the way that Trump, you know, has these one on one phone calls because that's the way phone calls work. He has these one on one phone calls with these leaders from these other countries. Um And what he is talking about in terms of, you know, a lot of this diplomacy stuff is also the way that he talks about trade, the way that he says, we're getting out of these multilateral deals. We're going to do bilateral deals because, you know, I want to essentially get in there and be aggressive and, you know, do my aggressive deal making thing. And what's really stunning to me, I think, is that Donald Trump takes this very tough tone on everything. And yet... The way that he is able to take that tough tone is by playing the U.S. as the victim. We are being taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. He says, actually, we want to be strong, but guys, other countries are making us look weak. Therefore, I need to punch back. And the question that I keep running into is, "Okay, at what point does he have to stop saying or will he ever have to stop saying, guys, guys, no, seriously, We're still the victim. We've still got a punch back.
3: It's entirely possible that he would uh, extract some sort of concession from Australia with respect to the 1,250 refugees and then say, okay... Better deal. We got a better deal, and we got it because of the way I went after it. And the same thing could happen with respect to trade, and the same thing could happen with respect to jobs that might go to another country or might come back. Mm -hmm. He might very well be willing to to be satisfied or to claim to be satisfied with half a loaf and say, you're better off now because of my negotiating.
2: So I think um, when this story about this Mexico phone call came out, uh, I logged into Facebook, and my Facebook feed was covered with people saying, good God, we're about to go to war with Mexico. And I think that gets into something that I know we've talked a lot about in the office lately, catastrophizing. That is this knee-jerk reaction to Trump-related news on the part of liberals, uh, a reaction to automatically assume the worst possible scenario immediately. Another example of that, uh, yesterday, the AP and other outlets reported that Trump had abruptly left the White House on Marine One for an unannounced trip to an undisclosed location a lot of people right away went into five along fires. Good God, where is he going? What's going on? Turns out he was going to Dover Air Force Base to honor the Navy SEAL who was killed in Yemen last week. His body was coming back to the United States, which is something Barack Obama did as well. He'd go to Dover without announcing it beforehand. Danielle, you have a lot of thoughts on on this broader concept.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the thing that you're going to see any time uh, that the administration changes party hands it is quite likely that you are going to see the conspiracy theorizing, if that's a term, flip to the other party. I mean, I'm not saying all of this is necessarily conspiracy theories, but that is where you start seeing the new stories pop up.
2: Right. And I think that's important because there is a lot of real news that's coming out that is totally mind-bending and totally unprecedented. Absolutely,
1: and, yeah. that, and that is totally true. So it's very, very easy to get it into your head that anything crazy can and will happen. So anything crazy you hear must be true. To give a very benign example of this, there was a thing that I, I imagine all of you saw on Twitter last week where... Someone put out these photos saying, oh, my God, in the White House photos, they photoshopped Trump's hands to look bigger. Mm -hmm. People leapt on this. They retweeted. As it turns out, it wasn't true. You know, this is based on research. There's a guy named Brendan Nyhan at Dartmouth who does a lot of research on conspiracy theories and who believes what. And the idea is that, you know, during the George W. Bush administration, there were more conspiracy theories from liberals. During the Barack Obama administration, there were more conspiracy theories from conservatives. So you might see some misinformation being bought into by the left in the coming four years.
2: And no, before you start yelling at us, I think we're not putting equal weight to all of those. Obviously, the whole birther thing was a whole different class of itself. But I think generally... My new approach has been to wait for a second source to (laughs) check it out before I retweet. Think before you retweet.
0: Right. We're also just living in a time where people conflate social media with the media and things mm-hmm. they see on social platforms like Twitter and Facebook with traditional sources of the news. And we're also living in a period of time where uh, most people don't trust the news. There is a deep, deep well of mistrust and suspect about traditional news sources. And all of that plays into conspiratorial thinking and, and a distrust of information sources that pe- people used to find reliable. Mm hmm.
2: All right, so so let's hop back into this conversation about foreign policy. We need to note a few other big things that happened this week. Uh, Yesterday, during the Daily Press briefing at the White House, the president's national security advisor, Michael Flynn, comes up to the lectern to deliver a statement. Uh,
3: Let's listen to it. The Obama administration failed to respond adequately to Tehran's malign actions, including weapons transfers, support for terrorism, and other violations of international norms. The Trump administration condemns such actions by Iran that undermine security, prosperity, and stability throughout and beyond the Middle East, and which places American lives at risk. President Trump has severely criticized the various agreements reached between Iran and the Obama administration, as well as the United Nations, as being weak and ineffective. Instead of being thankful to the United States in these agreements, Iran is now feeling emboldened. As of today, we are officially putting Iran on notice. Thank you.
2: And despite the fact that he said official, on notice is not an international legal term, despite its regular
3: use on the Colbert Report.
0: And what does that mean? I don't know. What does on notice mean? What on
3: does officially mean? Yeah. What does officially on notice mean? Would Mm -hmm. there be an unofficial double-secret probation kind of on notice? Is that a red line? It's like, Uh -uh. check yourself, Iran. (laughs) It's a little bit like that, and it is kind of a schoolyard bit of business, really. And again, it more or less dovetails with some of the ways that the president has been talking to Mexico and talking to Australia and talking to other countries. Mm
2: -hmm. And we should say that the on notice uh, message from Flynn was apparently a reaction to an Iranian ballistic missile test. Uh, Flynn said that that defied a U.N. Security Council resolution forbidding Iran from testing missiles that could carry nuclear weapons. So all this stuff is a major shakeup from from, you know, even the Bush to Obama transition. Like a lot of things that Trump wants to do are totally different than typical American foreign policy. And that's creating a lot of unrest throughout the federal government especially in the State Department. One thing that we saw happen this week was something called a dissent cable. This is basically a private channel for State Department employees to register their concerns about U.S. policy, and an unusually large number of service officers used it this week. Hundreds of them signed onto a cable to say that the temporary visa and refugee ban, quote, runs counter to American values and could be counterproductive. Uh, then we got a really interesting response from White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, who I guess kind of put them on notice. I mean, let's let's take a listen to what Spicer said. These career bu- bureaucrats have a problem with it. I think that they should either get with the program or they can go. Sean, hold on, on, hold, know, on hold on, hold on. This is, this is about the safety of America. And there's a reason that the majority of Americans agree with the president. It's because they understand that that's his number one priority. And it's his number one duty, as it should be with any leader, to keep our, our people and our institutions safe from attack and that these steps are, frankly, common sense steps that the president's taking to make sure that we're never looking in the rearview mirror saying we should have done something like this.
0: It does seem very clear that the Trump administration sees many of the civil service employees in the federal agencies as potentially, political opponents. And that we know with the immigration orders that he put out over the weekend that the State Department and their employees were cut out of that decision-making process. We do know that there's a lot of unrest within the departments right now among those civil service employees. And I think it's important to remember that most of the people that work for the federal government aren't political appointees. Mm-hmm. They are civil servants and they are, and they are federal government employees. And in most of these agencies, Donald Trump isn't filling them out with his own people, that they are people that existed under Bush, under Obama, and now under Trump. And there's a general conservative view that people that work for the government tend to be Democrats. And yeah. I think that's certainly the view of the Trump administration. But for the White House spokesman to say, get on board or get out, was a really provocative, if not threatening statement. I mean, what
1: one additional fact, check to throw in here. I mean, Ron and I were, uh, before we even started recording, looking at polls on this. And to say that a majority of Americans agree on this travel ban is a bit shaky. Um, So there was a poll from Reuters Ipsos that said 49% of American adults say they either strongly or somewhat agree with this executive order. Uh, Interestingly enough, only 31% of adults said the order makes them feel more safe. And Ron, there's a Gallup poll you were pointing to, right?
3: Then we see a Gallup poll that came out on Thursday that said that actually those numbers have changed somewhat. And now you have 55% of people saying they don't approve of the ban on the people from those seven countries. And another percentage that said they don't approve of a blanket ban on Syrian refugees. Mm -hmm. So, And these were actual majorities saying they did not agree. So look, a public opinion is going to be split on this. It's right. a highly contentious issue. It's a highly emotional issue. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly not trying to suggest that there is a clear judgment of all the public. Exactly. But to say that there is in favor would seem to be counterfactual.
1: Mm-hmm. And furthermore, a lot of this probably rests on question wording. If you're say, if you're giving people the option of yes, no, strong, somewhat, exactly. a little bit, blah blah yes. blah blah blah. So it's really hard to even measure issues in that way in many polls. And that's one reason, broader point, uh, that issue polls can be really tough to interpret. A lot of the
2: time okay we are going to take a quick break when we come back we are going to talk about the fact that the last two weeks have felt like a lot longer than two <laughs> weeks uh, we'll, we'll be back in a minute support for this podcast and the following message come from rocket mortgage by quicken loans when choosing a mortgage lender work with one that has your best interests in mind Rocket Mortgage provides a transparent online process that helps you understand your home loan. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you get the right mortgage solution. Skip the bank, skip the waiting, and go completely online at quickenloans.com slash nprpolitics. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. nmlsconsumeraccess.org number
0: 3030.
2: And we're back. Let's talk for a bit about time, because I think everybody would agree a lot happened with Trump's presidency already. Uh, Executive orders, memoranda, controversial cabinet nominees, a Supreme Court nominee, various crises and controversies of the day. He has been president for less than two weeks. This is a very long two weeks and feels like it's going to be a very long four years just in terms of news cycles and the amount of stuff that happens a day.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I talked to I've talked to a lot of Republicans about this this week. Just the sheer ferocity by which Trump is moving on many different levels. And Lou Barletta, who's a Republican from Pennsylvania, who was one of the earliest Trump supporters and has been one of his earliest allies on the Hill, said essentially his message to his colleagues was you need to get used to it, that this is how Trump is and that he wants to see action and he likes to see movement and that, you know, presidents have management styles. If you remember the things we heard a lot about Barack Obama, that it was no drama Obama, that he liked a low drama White House Mm -hmm. and also that they're, they're presiding management doctrine about everything was don't do stupid stuff. You know, we heard that quoted a lot. And we're starting to get a sense of what the Trump style is like and that clearly his style is fast and furious with maybe a little bit of roller coaster diplomacy thrown into it. And this is really upending the way Washington likes to work, that places like Congress like to do things slow and methodical and deliberative. And there's going to be a lot of potential for clashes between Trump time and Washington time. Mm-hmm.
3: That's all true. It's also it's also true that Congress is slow, not just because of gridlock, although that's mm-hmm. the worst thing, the big break. Sure, it's also slow by design. Right. The, the Congress was designed the in the saucer. Constitution. Well, I, I, I hate that old cliche, <laughs> but there it is. Uh, the 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 Let's idea. Let's do it in
0: modern terms. The House has no chill, and the Senate. Has. Max, chill. <laughs> Max chill
2: Max chill I like the saucer line. I, well, the I old line the was the old line. line you don't was know the, the saucer the line? Senate Get out. was
3: designed to be a saucer in which the tea the cools. cooling for the tea. It cools the tea. Oh
2: but does God. anyone like pour their tea uh, into a
3: saucer? Does anyone pour and, like, tea s- anymore? I mean, what they're pouring up there well, never mind. Yeah, the so I, the, I, yeah. the idea is that the house and the senate must pass legislation in identical form. Mm-hmm. If you got 435 people together anywhere And ask them to put something together in identical form with a hundred other people whom they do not like, by and large, it would be difficult for them to do. And just because you're doing it here in Washington, D.C., does not make it easier.
2: I got it. The, The Senate is the spoon you scoop the ice cream out of and hold it for a few seconds and blow on it so that you don't get brain freeze. No? I'm surprised
3: that Work Walton, on it. I'm surprised okay. George Washington didn't come up with that himself.
2: <laughs> All right, uh, moving on to something else that uh, we need to talk about because even though it hasn't felt like two weeks, it is now February, and February is Black History Month, and President Trump on February 1st had a brief event marking Black History Month. Let's just listen to what President Trump had to say.
3: Last month we celebrated the life of the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., whose incredible example is unique in American history, you read all about Dr. Martin Luther King uh, a week ago when uh, somebody said I took the statue out of my office, and it turned out that that was fake news. Fake news.
2: <laughs> so Trump goes on to to talk about that, how that incorrect reporting was a disgrace. It was actually a pool note that was corrected. Uh, Trump also said, and this is what ricocheted around the Internet.
3: Frederick Douglass is an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is being recognized more and more, I notice. Which, of course, led
2: to the conclusion that perhaps Donald Trump does not know who Frederick Douglass is or that he is no longer alive.
3: But again,
0: I think this goes back to my earlier point about reading Trump and listening Trump are two different experiences because I read this speech before I heard it and thought, what did he just say? But listening to what he just said there, you know, the room laughs. Mm-hmm. There's a warmth there, there's a communication there. And I just think the Frederick Douglass line is reads absurd, but. I don't know if it felt absurd. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the difference. And we did a long
2: story, All Things Considered, did a couple of weeks ago on how Trump basically has the talking style of like a stand-up comic, and he's bouncing off the room and feeding off the room, and you mm-hmm. have to view it that way. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yes. Except that in this particular case, the room is the Oval Office. Yeah. Or the Roosevelt Room, or someplace else in the White House that implies there might be some policy and some seriousness.
2: All right, let's get to questions. Thanks for all of your emails. Our address of the podcast is nprpolitics at npr.org. And like we say every week, we really do read every single email and we really appreciate them. This is a question from Joel in Nova Scotia. He writes, as a Canadian watching all the madness to the south of us, I've appreciated your analysis. Thank you. My question is about strategy. While it's true that both houses of Congress are Republican and it's a unique legislative opportunity for Republicans, is there a danger in being too aligned with the Trump administration? Trump's administration is already unpopular. There are many potential scandals ahead. Joel, this feels like a Sue Davis question. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, this is my first thought towards Joel. Anyone who thinks that they can forecast what the political dynamic is going to be in the 2018 midterm elections has no clue what they're talking about. You know, we're as we said, we're 12 days into this administration. And I just think it's really impossible to have any kind of smart analysis today as to what that's going to look like a year and a half from now. That said, we do know who's up in 2018. So we do know the people that we are to be watching And the most interesting people right now in politics and how they're maneuvering are not Republicans. They're Democrats, because Democrats are defending more seats in the Senate in 2018. And most of these Democrats that are up in these tough races are running in states that Donald Trump won. Now... If the president is incredibly unpopular in the midterm elections, and of course the party in the White House tends to not do as well in midterm elections, so there's sort of that structural thing playing to Democrats' favor, but they have a lot of tough races to run. And what we've seen early is that more the maneuvering is not necessarily Republicans running away from Donald Trump. It's Democrats trying to exist in a world where a lot of their voters really like Donald Trump. And we mentioned already in the podcast, Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia, is a great example of that. You're going to hear that guy's name so much in the next year and a half because he's a great example of how does a Democrat run in the age of Trump. So we don't know. Um, I will say I have not seen yet. And again, it's early much effort to Really distance from Donald Trump. If anything, Republicans on Capitol Hill are really taking their cues from him and seeing where he's going to be on issues like repeal and replacing Obamacare and how to overhaul the tax code. And he is much more empowered now, despite the fact that he does have significant political opposition.
2: On the whole predicting things, I think the two things I keep coming back to these days is, first of all, everybody so clearly predicted 2016 so wrong at so many points in time. Totally. And two, the fact that if you had said in the first month of George Bush's presidency, the next president's going to be State Senator Barack Obama. And if you had said in the first months of Obama's presidency that the next president was going to be Donald Trump, I feel like people would have committed you both times.
0: Absolutely. You know? (laughs)
2: All right. Uh, thanks for the mail, and we are going to have another listener mail podcast coming very soon in your feed. Again, it's NPR Politics at npr.org. You can also tweet at us at NPR Politics. Let's end the roundup as we always do with "Can't Let It Go," where we all share one thing we just can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Uh, Sue, what do you got?
0: So. As we were talking about earlier in the podcast, how things are just happening and the news seems to be happening at such a ferocious pace. And one of the things that happened in the last week that I have been like side obsessing with that I don't really think is broken through is the story of how a woman infiltrated the Republican congressional retreat last week in Philadelphia and managed to spend the day inside the room at this retreat, was there for President Trump's address, was there for Theresa May's address before she was finally identified and escorted out. And she was impersonating a congressional spouse, according to law enforcement officials who have investigated this. And I am obsessed with this because this is the kind of story that in a, in a different parallel universe we would be obsessing about it would yeah. be leading cable news it would be this big story about a law enforcement failure about someone infiltrating this government retreat the security risks it could have posed barely a blip on the radar but it was I like can't it, let it go <laughs> and it was like impossible to get in there because we uh covering
2: it we were not allowed to go onto the other side of the street we were basically sitting around waiting for the news to come back from the other building so the fact that she was able to get in there is nuts.
0: No, and the fact we were joking on the hill, like what we want to know which congressman's spouse she said she was. Like they were like, "Who's wife are you?" And she's like, "Congressman Smith." <laughs> <laughs> uh, and she was identified today. She is a Philadelphia reporter, uh, and uh. and and also we should say at this retreat. There were leaked audio of these internal sessions that have been reported by The Washington Post and other news outlets. It is not clear that she was the leaker, but she is probably high on the suspect list.
2: It's like a brash Philadelphian
3: thing to do.
0: Yeah. Total Philly girl.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Ron, how about you? Well, let's take something a little lighter. Uh, We had the spectacle of CNN reporter Manu Raju standing in one of the hallways of the Senate office buildings making a very serious report about the very serious news that is coming out of the Senate these days. And suddenly up from behind him comes none other than senior Senator John McCain, who proceeds to make the two little two-fingered horns on top of Manu Raju's head. Bunny ears. <laughs> bunny ears, but it if It wasn't will.
1: bunny ears. It was like the, the hook of horns. Horns. Yeah. It was more yeah. like a horned
3: thing. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, then he chuckles and moves on. Uh, which tended to remind some old-timers that uh, many years ago, before he became a senior senator, uh, John McCain was one of the uh, young Turks on Capitol Hill when he worked as a liaison for the Navy, uh, and before he was actually in elected office, and was known for his sense of humor and known for his ability to have a light touch at times. In all of these decades that he's been serving in the Senate now, he has obviously acquired a somewhat more serious reputation, but we saw a flash of the old John McCain this morning.
2: All right. So I will go. And mine is more of a question. And I guess this is Sue and Ron. I'm going to ask you because you have both spent a lot of time in the Senate at different eras. Uh,
3: I am new to he covering. Costs. Are you sure you don't want to say <laughs> centuries? I was, you know, it's true. It's different centuries.
0: Ron covered the cane beating on the floor of the Senate. <laughs> that's, right,
3: that's right. And I'm not talking Tim Kane. This was a real cane.
0: So
2: I am new to Congress, and uh, yesterday during the Rex Tillerson vote, I watched the vote from the gallery, which I've done a couple times now, and it's kind of cool to see all of the senators come in and vote because it's like a wave. They come in, and then they all kind of, like, hang out and congregate and talk to each other. And I was really struck by how much senators, like, touch each other. Like, they're really handsy people. Like, when they're going up to have a conversation, there's a lot of, like, arm on the shoulder, there's like a lot of sidle side hug, there's like a lot of huddling and like man hugs and just like, they're very touchy people. And am, am I making this
0: up or is this like a thing? I I think it's maybe a little weird that you've noticed this. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, the thing I would say is that I think, you know, we talk so much about how partisan and polarized Washington is and Congress is and the country is and I still argue the Senate is still the club mm-hmm. and they go to battle ideologically democrats boycott committee meetings all these things happen but when they're on the floor and they're not in front of the c-span cameras there is a lot of camaraderie a lot more um friendly behavior a lot more backslapping and they are still part of one of the world's most exclusive clubs and it's nice to be a member of the club
3: I do like to get chummy. I remember in the past, uh, there were some who were not so inclined. Uh, As I recall, Bill Proxmire used to like, he never missed a vote. He would love it to come in the back doors, get the clerk's attention. Then he would signal his up thumb or down thumb and shout his vote across the Senate floor and then leave. Uh, He was not the kind of person to come down and chummy it up with the other uh, senators down in the well. On the other hand, there are quite a number of these people who just don't seem to be able to stop with the chummy and the arm around the shoulder and the touchy-touchy. But like like when we're having our
2: newsroom meetings, I don't go up and like squeeze your elbow when we're talking about the news stories. Well, I mean, maybe we should,
0: a lot of Scott. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you should.
3: Well, maybe if we were voting on the news stories and you wanted my vote, you might give me a little squeeze uh, now and then. Can I tell
0: That's you something? my favorite thing about the Senate is that when they're voting, they still have pages open the doors for the senators. Do you yeah. notice this? Yeah. The senators don't open their own doors. So I always joke that like when a senator's trying to go somewhere, that do they walk into doors a lot? Because they're so used <laughs> to like whatever they're in when they're in session on the hill, the doors always open for them. <laughs>
3: like those outtakes from Star Wars, when and the someone... doors would not sh- open and, <laughs> and they would <laughs> bam right into it.
0: And someone still pushes the button for them to go up and down. They still have elevator pages and door pages. So I, I like to picture senators like alone in the wild by themselves, and they like <laughs> the elevator won't go anywhere, and they're like, "What do I do?"
3: Most of them still negotiate the stairs pretty well by themselves. <laughs> All right, maybe that's just me then,
2: but but thanks, Danielle. Uh, what? <laughs> What can you not let go?
1: Well, I, I'm going to call an audible here because I was going to talk about Beyonce and Ollie the Bobcat and how you know the internet lost its you know collective whatever over that yesterday. But this is a genuine can't let it go. When we first got into the studio today, we were talking about Groundhog Day because today is the first day. By the way.
2: Putting my Um, hat back on, I I took it off. I want you all to
1: look at, I tweeted this, uh, it's a photo of Scott at his microphone with his groundhog hat on.
2: Which I got Um, in Punxsutawney. Because
0: today is the first day, I'm- that's a groundhog. I thought that was a poop emoji hat. (laughs) 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 Literally. Ah,
1: This entire podcast,
0: I thought you were wearing a poop emoji hat. (laughs)
1: And you were just going to just let that go? <laughs> live and let live, baby. Yeah. I don't judge. You do you. You do you. Just...
3: It's a brown groundhog. <laughs> be be
1: you yourself, you, Scott. but please
3: don't do a poop emoji. Oh,
1: gee. All right. all right. All right. All right. My point is this. Today is the first day that I really sat down and said, okay, wait, hold on. Groundhog's Day makes even less sense than the little sense I had been attributing to it. Oh, because it's weird. Scott... Has all all of this ridiculous stuff that I, I would swear wasn't true, except apparently it is. Like, the groundhog talks to a person? So
2: here's the thing. The president of the inner circle acquires the power to speak groundhog There's an elaborate ceremony that happens at dawn. I have been there, and I watch the live stream every year. And um, he acquires the power to speak groundhog And then so they bring Phil out. They chit-chat. And then he reads a proclamation.
0: Oh, my God. And there is not
3: a poop emoji hat in sight.
0: Not not yet. That's until I get to town. Everything about this is
1: blowing (laughs) my mind. So I will not let any of this go for a very long time. So there you have
2: it. Happy Groundhog Day.
1: Yeah, you too.
2: All right. That is a wrap. We know there's a lot going on. Just because we didn't get to something on the podcast does not mean we're not covering it. You can keep up with all of our coverage. At NPR.org and on the NPR One app, you can also support the podcast by supporting your local public radio station. Go to NPR.org slash stations to find yours and donate. Tell them we sent you. That really helps. And just as importantly, it helps your station get out there and cover the news in your community. And thank you to the folks who write us to let us know they've done that. If you can't donate, you can leave us a review on iTunes if you're liking the show. That also helps people find it. Okay, we will be back next week on Monday or Tuesday, depending on the news. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress.
1: I'm Danielle Kurtzleben,
0: political reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I also cover Congress.
1: And
2: I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.